This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In late 1984, Robert Tosh Plumley walked into the Oaxaca Cafe in Phoenix, Arizona. Waiting for him was a table full of local, state, and federal law enforcement officers. They had some questions about his work for an aviation company called Setco. Tosh was a CIA contract pilot who'd been working for the agency since the 1950s, when he was hired to fly weapons down to Cuba. Three decades later, he was working on a similar mission, flying arms to the Contras in Nicaragua. Plumley told the investigators that his job at Setco was to transport weapons from the U.S. to Central America and then fly back to the U.S. with cocaine. He insisted that his boss, a CIA handler, had told him the cocaine shipments were part of an undercover drug interdiction program. Kiki Camarena, a DEA agent, didn't buy it. The DEA would have to approve any operation like that, and they most certainly did not approve a secret mission to smuggle drugs into the U.S. Camarena accused Plumley of running drugs to line his own pockets. He said he was going to get to the bottom of this, and when he did, Plumley and everyone else at Setco would be locked up for a long, long time. Plumley was terrified. He told his CIA handler about the threat. His handler replied, Don't worry, Camarena isn't going to do anything. Five months later, 
DEA agent Kiki Camarena was dead, and Setco's owner and operator, Juan Mata Ballesteros, was arrested in connection with his murder. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on the 1980s crack epidemic. According to the official story, the sudden influx of crack cocaine into American cities in the early 80s was completely unrelated to the Iran-Contra scandal. Part of President Ronald Reagan's anti-communism crusade was getting rid of the socialist Sandinistas who seized control of Nicaragua in 1979. The CIA tried to accomplish this by organizing a right-wing Nicaraguan rebel army called the Contras. When Congress cut off funding for the Contras in 1982, Reagan's National Security Council got creative, selling overpriced weapons to terrorists in Iran in violation of an arms embargo against that country and using the profits to buy more weapons for the Contras. Those weapons were then shipped to Central America via a network of covert CIA and NSC agents, ex-military pilots, and international drug traffickers. At the same time this was happening, in the mid-1980s, cities across the U.S. were ravaged by crack addiction. Crack was a new, superpotent form of cocaine— the very drug that was being smuggled into the U.S. en masse by Contra rebels, CIA contract pilots, and one of the Reagan administration's closest allies in the Contra fight, Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega. That's the official story. And it only gets weirder from there. In 1989, a congressional investigation led by Senator John Kerry found that while, quote, individual Contras, Contra suppliers, Contra pilots, mercenaries who worked with the Contras, and Contra supporters, end quote, definitely engaged in drug running, there wasn't conclusive evidence that the Contras leadership or the U.S. government were personally involved in it. Some people are, understandably, skeptical about that conclusion. This week, we'll take a look at three prevalent theories regarding what really happened during the crack epidemic and how it might be tied to the CIA's involvement in cocaine trafficking. Conspiracy theory number one. The CIA actively encouraged Contra leaders to smuggle drugs into the United States to boost funding for the rebel army. 
Conspiracy theory number two. The crack epidemic was engineered by the Reagan administration to destroy black communities. And conspiracy theory number three. In 1985, the CIA sanctioned the murder of DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena in an attempt to cover up the Iran-Contra affair. All of these theories are a mesh of known facts and speculation. During the Kerry Committee investigation, the White House admitted that Contra rebels had smuggled cocaine into the U.S. and used the profits to fund their resistance effort. But that smuggling was supposedly performed without the authorization of Contra leadership or the U.S. government. Many people found it hard to trust the Reagan White House's word on this, since they'd been lying through their teeth about their operations in Latin America for most of the past decade. In 1996, nearly a decade after the Kerry Committee published their report, journalist Gary Webb of the San Jose Mercury News dug into evidence that the link between the Contras, the U.S. government, and cocaine trafficking was much deeper than the official reports suggested. Well, this brings us to our first conspiracy theory. The CIA didn't just ignore Contra drug trafficking, they encouraged it as a way to boost funds for the cash-strapped rebel army, which supported their bigger goal of stamping out communism in Latin America. When Webb published his findings in a series of Mercury News articles in 1996, he was met with skepticism and criticism. Much of his work was based on the claims of anonymous sources and convicted drug traffickers, who many saw as unreliable witnesses. The Washington Post called it unforgivably careless journalism. Since most of Webb's Freedom of Information Act requests for documents were denied or ignored by the government, he couldn't verify whether the majority of their claims were true. But he published his series anyway, hoping it would lead to a federal investigation, which it did. The Justice Department, CIA, and House Intelligence Committee all opened inquiries into Webb's allegations throughout the late 90s. What they found both refuted and confirmed various aspects of his story. With that in mind, let's dive into Webb's theory and the government's response. We spoke last week about Freeway Rick Ross, the young drug dealer who became the reigning crack kingpin of south-central L.A. in the early 1980s. Ross credits much of his success to the help of his supplier, Oscar Danilo Blandone. Blandone was a Nicaraguan national who'd fled to the United States after the Sandinistas took over in 1979. He landed in Los Angeles, where he began attending regular meetings for a local political group affiliated with the Nicaraguan Democratic Force, or FDN, one of the rebel groups that would soon be absorbed into the Contras. In 1982, Blandone met a fellow Nicaraguan exile, Norwin Meneses Contrero. Meneses was a fervent supporter of the Contras, and he also just happened to run a major international cocaine smuggling operation. Back in Nicaragua, Meneses was known as the Padrino, or Godfather. During the Sandinista Revolution, he fled to the San Francisco Bay Area and continued his drug running from there. At their first meeting, Meneses pitched an idea. 
He would provide cocaine to Blandone. Blandone would sell it in Los Angeles, and they would send the profits back home to the Contras. This was around the time the first Boland Amendment was passed, cutting off congressional funding for the Contras, and the resistance was in dire need of help. Blandone was on board. He claims that later in 1982, he and Menezes flew down to Honduras to meet with cocaine suppliers. While there, they met with Enrique Bermudez, the commander of the FDN, and one of the Reagan administration's primary contracts within the Contra movement. According to Blandone, Ramudez emphasized that the Contras desperately needed funds and encouraged Menezes and Blandone to raise money in the U.S. Blandone admits Bermudez never directly mentioned raising money through drug sales. In fact, he later told the U.S. Justice Department that he didn't believe Bermudez even knew about their plan to send drug profits to the Contras. However, given Manessas's well-known reputation as a drug kingpin, it's safe to assume Bermudez knew the money they raised wouldn't be clean, as they say. During his trial in 1992, Blendone recalled, quote, There is a saying that the ends justify the means, and that's what Mr. Bermudez told us in Honduras, okay? Once they got back to California in 1982, Manessas gave Blandone his first shipment of cocaine. For about a year, Blandone sold drugs through a network of dealers in Los Angeles and donated the proceeds to his local Contra organization. Then, in late 1983 or early 1984, Blandone was introduced to L.A.'s rising kingpin, Freeway Rick Ross. It's impossible to calculate exactly how much cocaine passed through their hands, since neither side of the operation kept meticulous records. But Blandone testified that by 1984, he was selling Ross 100 kilograms of cocaine per month. By 1986, Blandone was selling 100 kilograms per week to four or five distributors, including Ross. That totals 5.7 tons per year. And as Blandone later testified at Ross's 1996 trial, whatever we were running in L.A., the profit was going to the Contra Revolution. That is what Blandone said during the 1996 trial. However, after Gary Webb's Dark Alliance articles were published later that year, he told the Justice Department that he personally only sent about $40,000 in drug profits to the Contras over the course of his career. An October 1996 L.A. Times article arrived at a similar figure for Norwin Manessis' contributions. According to two Contra organizers, he only donated $50,000 to the cause. Blandone and Manessas very well may have only donated a combined 90000 of their personal money to the Contras. But remember, they were getting their drug supply through Contra-linked smugglers. Assuming the smugglers kept a cut for themselves, untold millions of dollars were ending up in the rebel army's hands. Based on the volume of cocaine Blandone was moving, Gary Webb estimated the Contras earned between 12 and $18 million from the California drug ring. If that figure is correct, we can safely count Blandone, Manessas, and by extension Rick Ross among the legions of drug traffickers who are keeping the Contras running. But so far, we haven't learned anything new. 
It's already been well established that drug money was used to fund the Contras. The more important question is, how much did the government know? As we mentioned, Norwin Meneses was widely known to be a drug trafficker, both in Nicaragua and the U.S. Enrique Bermudez, the main liaison between the rebel force and the White House, knew that Meneses and Blandone were sending huge sums of money down to the Contras. And according to the girlfriend of one of Meneses and Blandone's associates, another major Contra leader named Adolfo Calero often came around the house to pick up duffel bags full of money. She admits that Calero might not have known it was drug money, quote, if he was stupid and had a lobotomy. If the CIA truly had no idea that two of their main Contra liaisons were receiving entire bags full of drug money, that doesn't speak well to their intelligence-gathering capabilities. And if they did know that the Contras were moving drugs directly into Freeway Rick Ross's hands, and they didn't pass that information onto the DEA, the CIA is complicit in the crack epidemic he unleashed on Los Angeles. But is this just a case of negligence? Or did the CIA actively protect Manessa's and Blandon's drug ring from investigation? According to Gary Webb, in 1981, a DEA agent named Sandra Smith began investigating Norwin Meneses and found evidence that he'd been running a major drug trafficking ring in San Francisco since the mid-1970s. But before her investigation could get off the ground, it was shut down by higher-ups for reasons Agent Smith said were not clear. And perhaps because they knew looking into Meneses would lead her directly to the Contras. There was a conspiracy happening here, but it's not the one you're thinking of. Shortly after Webb's article was published, Sandra Smith clarified that the reason her investigation never went anywhere was good old-fashioned sexism. She was the first female agent in the San Francisco DEA office. She told her supervisor that the Manessas case warranted a full task force, and he agreed, but he didn't trust her to oversee one. With none of the men in the office willing to take on the job, the investigation fell by the wayside. Another point Webb mentions, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department raided 13 of Blandone's drug safe houses in 1986. But miraculously, no drugs were found in any of them. Webb speculated that the CIA had tipped him about the search warrants in advance so that he had time to clear out. However, when Blandon was asked about it by the DOJ, he said he hadn't been tipped off by anyone. Some of his associates had been picked up by the FBI shortly before the raids, so Blandon decided it might be good to change locations just to be safe. Webb also found it suspicious that after Blandone was convicted of drug trafficking in 1992, he was suddenly released after only 28 months in prison. He clearly had friends in high places pulling the strings. That is true in a way. As the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Blandone was released because he agreed to become an informant and help the DEA take down Rick Ross. There's nothing unusual about a drug offender being offered a reduced sentence in exchange for this kind of informant work, and it definitely doesn't imply the CIA was working in the shadows. 
In fact, the agency's internal investigation into the Dark Alliance series found no evidence that Blandon, Manessas, Rick Ross, or anyone related to them had ever worked for the CIA in any capacity. If I was going to hire international drug traffickers to secretly raise money for Nicaraguan death squads, I probably wouldn't write about it in any official paperwork either. Either way, at the end of the day, there's simply no hard proof that the CIA was directly involved in Blandone and Rick Ross's cocaine pipeline. But with what we know on the record about the CIA's connections to drug trafficking, it's certainly not unlikely. In fact, one of the strongest rebuttals against Gary Webb's claims is that the CIA didn't need to recruit a mid-tier distributor like Danilo Blandone. The Contras were already receiving funds directly from the likes of Pablo Escobar and Manuel Noriega. So I'll give this theory an 8 out of 10. Totally reasonable, but the solid evidence isn't quite there. Well, that's about the response Webb got from the mainstream media when his articles ran in the Mercury News. Everyone from the New York Times to the Washington Post poked holes in his story, calling it more speculation than fact. But he did find some prominent supporters, among them California Representative Maxine Waters. Coming up, we'll look at the second theory that spawned from Webb's reporting— Was the crack epidemic a government conspiracy to destroy black communities? This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. When Gary Webb's Dark Alliance series was published in the San Jose Mercury News in 1996, it was met with shock, anger, criticism, and derision. But for many Americans, it confirmed something they'd already suspected. The government wasn't merely ignoring the devastation of the crack epidemic. They were responsible for it. Our second theory takes Webb's investigation a step further. The Reagan administration purposely engineered the crack epidemic in an attempt to destroy black communities. As we discussed last week, while powder cocaine was typically used by wealthy elites in the 70s, 
Crack's low price point opened it up to the masses. People of all races and economic classes became hooked on the new drug, but urban, working-class black communities were hit the hardest. Statistics from the 80s are murky, but the 2012 National Survey on Drug Use and Health found that 55% of crack users are white, while 37% are black. However, in 1998, the Justice Department reported that 74% of people sentenced to prison for drug possession were black. Federal crime data also shows that black men are five times more likely to be arrested for drug offenses than white men. It's impossible to deny that there were major discrepancies in arrest and sentencing rates in the wake of the crack epidemic. Some of this could be explained by simple racism. Individual police officers, judges, and jury members acting more harshly towards black suspects because of their own prejudice. But looking at the scale of the problem, some people wonder whether the disproportionate punishment of black citizens was a side effect of institutional racism, or whether it was the goal all along. After Gary Webb's Dark Alliance series was published in 1996, California Representative Maxine Waters asked, who knew what, when did they know it, and how high did it go? To answer that question, we need to go back to the original champion of the anti-drug crusade, Richard Nixon. In 1971, with the counterculture hippie movement on its way out, President Nixon declared a war on drugs. He completely criminalized marijuana use, pushed for mandatory sentencing laws, and set aside $75 million to create the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. Drug abuse was public enemy number one, and Nixon was taking it to task. But the campaign's purpose wasn't as innocent as it might seem. John Ehrlichman, Nixon's domestic policy chief and one of the main architects of the war on drugs, openly admitted that the real enemy wasn't drug abuse. It was, quote, the anti-war left and black people. In 1994, Ehrlichman told journalist Dan Baum, quote, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. And that's exactly what they did. Nixon created no-knock laws that allowed police to break down doors of suspected drug users' homes without even announcing they were there. Within a decade, the male incarceration rate doubled. And a decade later, those numbers had doubled again. And by the time Reagan took office in 1981, around 40% of new inmates admitted to state and federal prisons were black, even though only 12% of the total U.S. population was black. When Reagan declared his own war on drugs, he turned the focus specifically to crack cocaine. In 1986, new sentencing laws were passed that made the penalties for crack possession or trafficking 100 times more severe than for powder cocaine. What that means, for example, is that a person found in possession of 5 grams of crack, 
the weight of two pennies, would receive the same mandatory five-year sentence as someone found with 500 grams of powder cocaine. Since crack had been painted as a, quote, urban black problem, it should come as no surprise that these laws disproportionately affected black men. 80% of the defendants sentenced under these new crack laws were black, even though, as we stated earlier, over half of all crack users are white. And while drug addicts and small-time street dealers were being tossed behind bars, most of the international traffickers who were flooding the streets with drugs were getting off scot-free. More than that, many of them were on the government's payroll. After the Iran-Contra scandal broke and the 1996 Dark Alliance articles ran, it seemed inconceivable to many that the Reagan administration could wage such a brutal war against drug trafficking while secretly diverting government funds to some of the continent's biggest drug traffickers. But to many black leaders, this news was the missing piece in the puzzle. It seemed obvious to many that Reagan's war on drugs was just an extension of Nixon's, a political scheme to disrupt left-leaning black communities. Only this time, the government didn't just villainize a drug epidemic that already existed. They created it from scratch. This theory extends Gary Webb's allegations by claiming that the CIA didn't simply excuse contra drug trafficking because it solved their funding problem. The drug trafficking was, in a sense, killing two birds with one stone, raising money for the Contra War, and dealing with the black voters who overwhelmingly voted against Reagan in the 1980 and 1984 elections. The evidence here is mostly circumstantial, but it paints a suspicious picture. First, there's the fact that Nixon's first iteration of the war on drugs was a blatant attempt to disrupt black communities. Then there was the CIA's involvement, or at least complicity, in bringing cocaine into the U.S. right during the start of the crack epidemic. And finally, once crack addiction had gripped its claws into U.S. cities, there was one more step to secure the devastation. Past draconian sentencing laws that, as we've seen, put a disproportionate number of black men behind bars. It's very easy to see why this theory gained traction. It's tempting to try and tie all these events into a coherent narrative with a single nefarious goal guiding every step along the way. The crack epidemic destroyed so many lives through addiction, overdoses, imprisonment, and violence that it's only natural to look for someone to blame. The only problem is, once again, the evidence is circumstantial. There's no smoking gun, no admission of guilt from a Reagan official who claims crack was a government scheme to destroy black communities. Looking at what we know about the Iran-Contra affair, it actually seems unlikely that the Reagan administration was organized enough to pull off such a massive con, at least without leaving a trail of evidence. Did the crack epidemic disproportionately harm black communities? Absolutely. Was the U.S. government complicit in that destruction? Definitely. But did they orchestrate the entire crack epidemic from the beginning? I'll give it a 7 out of 10. It's entirely possible, but we just don't have solid proof. 
We may not have a smoking gun right now, but that doesn't mean we won't uncover one eventually. Remember, it took two decades for John Ehrlichman to speak out about the true purpose of Nixon's war on drugs. Even today, new details about the crack epidemic and the U.S. government's role in it are still coming to light. Most of the major players in the story are still alive, and many of them have only recently come forward with information they've kept quiet about for decades. And some of Gary Webb's claims, which he wasn't able to prove in 1996, have been substantiated by new evidence and new testimony. When Webb's articles were published in the San Jose Mercury News, they caught the eye of one DEA agent named Hector Berreyes. Two years later, Webb and Berreyes met at a steakhouse in Los Angeles, and Berreyes told Webb, quote, I want you to know everything you wrote was true. I have a CIA operative who will tell you it was true. In the late 80s, Boreas had been tasked with investigating the murder of a DEA agent stationed in Guadalajara, Mexico, a matter that should have had nothing to do with the CIA or the Contras. But as Boreas discovered, the connections between the CIA and the crack epidemic went much deeper than even Gary Webb had suggested. Coming up, we'll look at our third and final conspiracy theory. Did the CIA help supply cocaine to the biggest drug cartel in Mexico? And if so, how far did they go to cover it up? Now, back to the story. While Freeway Rick Ross was expanding his crack empire across the United States in the early 1980s, another kingpin was rising just south of the border— Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. Throughout the 70s and early 80s, Felix's drug operation, the Guadalajara Cartel, was wresting control of the entire Mexican drug world one city at a time. And like Rick Ross, he did it with the help of pure Colombian cocaine. At some point in the mid-1970s, the Guadalajara cartel began smuggling cocaine across the U.S. border as intermediaries for Colombian cartels. The man who introduced the two nations was Juan Mata Ballesteros, a Honduran drug trafficker and the owner of an aviation company called Setco. By 1984, The Guadalajara cartel controlled nearly every piece of Mexico's drug turf. They had a 2,500-acre marijuana plantation in the Chihuahuan Desert. They were moving four tons of cocaine into the U.S. every month, and most of the country's police were in their back pocket. No law enforcement, Mexican or American, was brave enough to ruffle the feathers of a group so powerful and connected. That is, except one dogged DEA agent named Enrique Kiki Camarena. Agent Camarena had been assigned to Guadalajara in 1981. He spent four years on the trail of the growing cartel, running into bureaucratic roadblocks at every turn. Finally, by May 1984, He'd located the cartel's 2,500-acre marijuana field, and under intense pressure from the U.S., Mexican law enforcement finally folded and agreed to take action. In November 1984, Camarena led a joint U.S.-Mexican raid on the massive marijuana field. 
burning an estimated $8 million worth of crops. The Guadalajara cartel was livid. Until this point, the DEA had been a minor annoyance. They were either too scared or too incompetent to do any real damage to the cartel. But this raid proved they were finally getting serious. It was time to send the Americans a message. South of the border, the Guadalajara cartel was king. On February 7, 1985, Kiki Camarena was abducted in broad daylight outside the U.S. consulate in Guadalajara. Five armed men from the Mexican Federal Security Directorate, or DFS, shepherded him into a car and took him off to a remote location. He was brutally tortured for 30 hours, during which time he was questioned, on tape, about any information the DEA had on Mexican narcotics operations. Finally, he was killed and his body was dumped in the rural outskirts of Michoacan. The fallout was immediate. The DEA launched Operation Leyenda, which remains the largest homicide investigation in the agency's history. The Guadalajara cartel's three central leaders were quickly pegged as the prime suspects, along with their Honduran accomplice, Juan Mata Ballesteros. All four were eventually arrested and convicted, and the power vacuum threw the Mexican drug world into chaos. Throughout the late 80s, drug smuggling along the Mexico-U.S. border only increased, and unprecedented amounts of U.S. resources were directed toward stopping the problem. Thus began the Mexican front of the war on drugs. North of the border, Camarena immediately became a martyr figure for the DEA. Just a few weeks after his death, California Congressman Duncan Hunter established Camarena clubs in high schools across the state to teach teens about the dangers of the drug trade. The program gained national attention by late 1985 when they presented the Camarena Club proclamation to First Lady Nancy Reagan. In 1988, the National Family Partnership, chaired by Ronald and Nancy Reagan, established the first Red Ribbon Week in Camarena's honor. Still active today, Red Ribbon Week is the largest drug awareness program in the United States. The official story of Kiki Camarena's death is that of a public servant making the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of justice. But as we say, the official story isn't always the truth. While Reagan was publicly honoring Camarena as a fallen hero in the war on drugs, his government was secretly supporting the very drug traffickers who had murdered him. This brings us to conspiracy theory number three, Kiki Camarena was killed by the CIA to hide their involvement in international cocaine trafficking. Let's circle back to that historic manhunt, Operation Leyenda. Due to the Guadalajara cartel's protection from the Mexican government, four years into the investigation, the DEA was still having trouble getting to the bottom of what happened. In 1989, Hector Barreas, a star agent whose colleagues called him the Wyatt Earp of the DEA, was assigned to take over Operation Leyenda. Barreas had years of experience working undercover in Mexico, and when he took the helm of Operation Leyenda, 
He already had hundreds of contacts throughout the country, everywhere from cartel hideouts to the attorney general's office of the president's personal residence. Ten of these contacts, as it happened, were eyewitnesses to Camarena's abduction and murder. The DEA shepherded those informants to the U.S. for their own protection. The threat of retaliation was real. Twenty-three of Boreas's several hundred informants were murdered during the course of his investigation. That's including Guillermo Gonzalez Calderoni, the one-time deputy director of the Mexican DFS, who was shot to death in Texas in 2003. Before his death, he warned Boreas, quote, The whole case stinks, and if you don't step away, you'll stink too. Your own government killed Camarena. The evidence Boreas uncovered paints a much different picture of what happened in the lead-up to Camarena's murder. And of course, it all comes back to the U.S. government's involvement with the Contras. As we mentioned last week, while the Guadalajara cartel was growing, Juan Mata Ballesteros's company, Setco, was expanding its operations as well. In addition to flying massive amounts of cocaine across the Americas, by 1984, Setco was the main airline used by the Contras to transport weapons and supplies. By 1985, it was officially awarded a State Department contract for the same purpose. And the connections don't stop there. One of the witnesses Boreas tracked down was a CIA contractor named Lawrence Victor Harrison. Harrison, who's six foot seven, was nicknamed Torre Blanca, or the White Tower, by his Mexican compatriots. In 1968, he'd been recruited by the CIA to keep an eye on leftist radicals in Mexico. Eventually, he was passed on to the DFS, which worked closely with the CIA on intelligence matters. The DFS, as we've seen, also worked closely with drug traffickers. And in 1983, Harrison was tasked with installing surveillance systems for the Guadalajara cartel. As the cartel's new communications expert, he listened in on their audio surveillance system around the clock, and what he heard shocked him. Harrison overheard the cartel's leaders talking about sending money and weapons to the Contras in Nicaragua. He was later personally told by these same leaders not to worry about American law enforcement. They had a quid pro quo in place with the CIA. Harrison even claims he once saw a cartel-owned ranch being used to train Contra soldiers. That piece of intel was corroborated by pilot William Robert Tosh Plumley, a CIA contract pilot who worked for Setco throughout the 80s. He claimed he'd been hired to fly weapons down to the Ilopongo Air Base in El Salvador, which, as we mentioned last week, was a major Contra headquarters run by a former CIA agent named Felix Rodriguez. What's more, Plumley claimed he was making return flights into U.S. airbases with planes full of cocaine. These flights occasionally stopped at the same Guadalajara cartel ranch mentioned by Harrison as a training ground. Camarena found Plumley's claims too bizarre to be true. He threatened to shut down Plumley's gun and drug running operation, assuming he'd made up the part about the CIA's involvement. 
Plumlee immediately went to his boss, CIA operative William Bennett, and told him about the threat. Bennett reassured him, quote, Camarena isn't going to do anything. The CIA would make sure of it, one way or another. Even after Camarena's plantation raid in November 1984, which destroyed $8 million worth of marijuana, the Guadalajara cartel's cocaine smuggling hadn't slowed down one bit. Frustrated, Camarena decided to follow the money. He'd track down the cartel's overseas bank accounts and laundering fronts, seize their money, and squeeze them dry. There was one problem with this plan, however. As Mexico's former deputy DFS director, Guillermo Gonzalez Calderoni later told Agent Bereyes the pipeline of cartel money was flowing directly to Nicaragua. If Camarena followed the money, he discovered the connection between the cartel, the Contras, and the CIA. We should note that Calderoni is generally considered a reliable source when it comes to the Mexican underworld. That's because, as deputy director of the DFS, he worked for both the Mexican government and the Guadalajara cartel. As journalists Charles Bowden and Molly Malloy phrased it, quote, he knew where the bodies were because he'd put them there. In other words, Calderoni probably knew what he was talking about when he told Bereyes, quote, the CIA was working with the drug guys to get money for the Contras. Felix Rodriguez was working with Juan Mata Ballesteros. Kiki was to be picked up, but they went too far and they killed him. That Felix Rodriguez would be the ex-CIA agent who ran Contra operations in El Salvador and oversaw the airbase where drug shipments were allegedly being dropped off and warehoused. More details emerge from a DFS officer named Jorge Godoy, who worked as a bodyguard for the Guadalajara cartel and was convicted as an accessory to Camarena's murder. Godoy recalled a series of meetings held in late 1984 involving cartel leadership, high-ranking Mexican officials and law enforcement, an American they called Torre Blanca, a.k.a. Lawrence Harrison, the surveillance technician we discussed earlier, and a Cuban named Max Gomez. Max Gomez, as we learned last week, was an alias of Felix Rodriguez. Rodriguez denies any involvement in the Camarena affair. However, Godoy and two other eyewitnesses all independently and positively identified him as the man in these meetings. The issue on the table was what to do about the DEA agent who was seizing their money and burning their fields. The group initially didn't know who the rogue agent was, but they planned what they were going to do once they found out. According to Godoy, everyone knew kidnapping a DEA agent would bring the fire of hell down on the cartel. But if Camarena got any closer to figuring out where their money was coming and going from, the backlash from the CIA would be unimaginably worse. So in February 1985, they made their move. Three eyewitnesses agreed to speak on the record about what happened after Camarena's kidnapping. Jorge Godoy, his boss in the DFS, who used the pseudonym Ramon Sanchez, and another DFS officer and cartel bodyguard, Rene Lopez Romero. 
All three positively identified Felix Rodriguez as the man asking the questions in the interrogation room. Camarena's 30 hours of torture and interrogation were all tape-recorded for posterity. Reyes eventually got a hold of three of those cassette tapes, which inexplicably were being held by the CIA. It's unclear how the tapes ended up in the CIA's hands or why they didn't share them with the DEA investigators right away. Felix Rodriguez's voice doesn't appear on any of those tapes, which mostly concern questions about the bust at the cartel's marijuana plantation. But along with those three tapes, the CIA also turned over a partial transcript of another tape that was apparently nowhere to be found. According to Godoy, who accompanied the cartel's leaders when they fled after the murder, there were actually five cassette tapes made during the interrogation. On one of them, which did not make it into the DEA's hands, Felix Rodriguez asked Camarena some more detailed and wide-ranging questions about DEA operations. Rene Lopez Romero, who was actually in the interrogation chamber, recalled that the Cuban, Felix Rodriguez, wanted to know the specific names of the traffickers and politicians the DEA was looking into. Lopez said, quote, they seemed to assume the United States already knew about them, like all they needed was for him to say it to confirm their worst fear. But Camarena truly didn't know anything. When Rodriguez felt satisfied that Camarena hadn't stumbled upon the scandal that would soon become Iran-Contra, he left, and the agent was killed for good measure. During his investigation, Hector Boreas asked the CIA about the missing tapes, but he was told that he couldn't have them, quote, for national security reasons, end quote. Thus, we know that more tapes exist, but there's no hard evidence of what's on them. After Camarena's body was dumped, the Guadalajara cartel scattered. Tosh Plumley, the set co-pilot we mentioned earlier, was summoned to help cartel leader Rafael Caro Quintero abscond to Costa Rica. It's unclear whether this mission was directed by Setco owner Juan Mata Ballesteros, who was also involved in the Camarena murder, or if the orders were coming from the CIA directly. Ballesteros, for his part, also fled Mexico. He spent several years in Colombia and then Honduras fighting against extradition to the U.S. on murder charges. Meanwhile, his company Setco was officially hired by the State Department to fly supplies to the Contras. And on the public front, the war on drugs continued. Ronald and Nancy Reagan held up Kiki Camarena as an American martyr. Red Ribbon Week swept across the nation, and militant drug interdiction programs swept across Mexico. Yet Hector Barreas was removed from Operation Leyenda, after bringing forward evidence that the CIA was involved in Camarena's murder. Pilot Tosh Plumley revealed everything he knew during a closed session hearing for the Kerry Committee in the late 80s, but his testimony remains under wraps for national security reasons. And even with the Guadalajara cartel's leadership behind bars, the flow of cocaine into the U.S. continued unimpeded. 
Operation Leyenda would eventually land by Esteros in a U.S. prison, along with several Mexican law enforcement officers. The head of the Mexican Federal Judicial Police and the director of Interpol in Mexico were also indicted. But the CIA connections Boreas brought forward were completely ignored. Boreas kept his silence for over two decades, afraid no one would believe his story if he tried to bring it forward. But in August 2013, Rafael Caro Quintero, one of the Guadalajara cartel leaders arrested for the Camarena murder, was released from prison on a technicality. That reopened the old wound for Boreas, and he finally came forward with everything we've just discussed. The story vindicated the rumors that had circled through Mexico for years. It also vindicated Gary Webb, though it was too late for him to see it. The controversy and backlash surrounding his Dark Alliance series ultimately ruined his career, and he committed suicide in 2004. If Boreas had spoken out sooner, it may have made all the difference for Webb. Jack Lawn, the former DEA head who had overseen Operation Leyenda, went on to deny that Hector Boreas was ever involved with the investigation, despite troves of documents and testimony proving otherwise. As for the CIA, a spokesperson told Fox News, quote, It's ridiculous to suggest that the CIA had anything to do with the murder of a U.S. federal agent or the escape of his killer. No counter-evidence or further detail was provided. Now, how ridiculous is this suggestion? Taking all the evidence together, I'll give this theory a 9 out of 10. We know that several CIA contractors, assets, and partner agencies were involved in Camarena's murder. Juan Mata Ballesteros was convicted. Multiple DFS officers who worked with the CIA were convicted alongside him. Tosh Plumley, a CIA pilot, unwittingly helped one of the culprits escape. And CIA asset Lawrence Harrison confessed that he saw it all go down. Felix Rodriguez, once again, has denied any involvement, but the multiple eyewitnesses placing him at the scene beg to differ. The only logical reason why this selection of people would come together to execute a DEA agent is if there was a serious fear that their Contra funding scheme would come to light. Still, it's fully possible that these individuals planned the kidnapping and murder on their own, without any orders from CIA higher-ups. But it takes a serious suspension of disbelief to think that the CIA an agency designed to collect information was completely unaware of what its own contractors, assets, and partner agencies were up to. In 1998, Gary Webb told Esquire magazine that if Berreas had spoken out about what he knew in the late 90s, quote, he would have shown that what I was reporting was not an aberration, that this was part of a pattern of CIA involvement with drugs, and he would have been believed. Boreas's evidence did add some legitimacy to the idea that the CIA was more actively involved in cocaine trafficking than they let on. But by the time he came forward, it was too little too late to make much of a difference in public opinion. As for us, we'll admit that this last conspiracy theory actually vindicates the other two. 
The evidence Boreas uncovered proves that the CIA was much more closely involved in cocaine trafficking than the official story suggests. Since these theories are all so closely linked, it's hard to accept one while rejecting the others. On the whole, I think it's fair to say the conspiracy theories are true. The Reagan administration bears a lot of responsibility for the crack epidemic. It's hard to believe one of the world's premier intelligence agencies was unaware that their allies, agents, and contractors were moving massive amounts of cocaine into their own country. They turned a blind eye and allowed it to happen, even as cities across the U.S. were spiraling into violence, crime, and chaos, even as American lives were being ruined by addiction or cut short by overdose deaths. How much is Ronald Reagan himself to blame? There are still questions about how much he knew regarding the Iran-Contra affair and the CIA's operations in Latin America. And if the CIA was involved in Camarena's murder, we can't prove if Reagan knew about it when his wife was signing the Camarena Club proclamation. But it was Reagan's win-by-any-means-necessary philosophy that allowed all of this to happen. In his quest to defeat communism, he encouraged secrecy, deception, and illegal tactics within his federal agencies. Even if, by some chance, he was completely unaware of his own CIA's connections to drug trafficking, he's responsible for giving them free reign without any boundaries or oversight. In the end, It doesn't matter whether the CIA was actively involved in contra cocaine trafficking or if they merely ignored it, as the official story claims. Responding to Gary Webb's Dark Alliance articles, Maxine Waters said, quote, It doesn't matter whether the CIA delivered the kilo of cocaine themselves or turned their back on it and let somebody else do it. They're guilty just the same. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.